Well, good morning. Why don't we take a minute and pray before we jump into our subject today. Father, we look to you today. We, we do just exalt your name. We love, oh Lord, singing your praise. And we love, oh Lord, to sing about your son who came into this world to die in our place and for our sin. You've made it possible for us to know you. And we're grateful for that, Lord. And thank you for all that you've given us. You've taken care of our needs. You've blessed us in many ways. Through your son, the Lord Jesus, we experience forgiveness of sin and eternal life. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us also your word so that we can understand your heart. And I pray you speak to us through our time together so we really focus on uh, this story we'll be looking at today. Help us to apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, my wife and I went uh, to London. Our daughter was taking a course at a university that was located just north of London, and we just took the excuse to go visit her and to visit the city at the same time. And while we were there, one of the days, our daughter was at her class, and we decided to go see the Tower of London, which has a lot of history associated with it, just fascinating stories related to the Tower of London. While we were waiting there, though, for the tour to start, there was a fairly large crowd gathered, and the tour guide wanted to kind of break the ice a little bit, and so he asked the question, where are you all from? And different ones shouted different places. Clearly, most of the people that were standing there that day were from other countries throughout Europe. And then the guide asked the question, are any of you from the United States? And if so, what... What state are you from? And, and a few hands went up. Minnesota, New York. And I hadn't yet answered when suddenly the guide said this. And I kid you not, he said, well, at least none of you are from West Virginia. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And then at that moment, my wife starts to raise her hand. It's like, what? No, we're from West... I know we are, but keep your hand down. <clears throat> I don't know why at that moment. I mean, as I think about it, I guess I do know why. I, I didn't want to identify myself with a state that obviously, from the perspective of the tour guide, was less than desirable for some reason. He has a, had a negative impression of the state, and obviously the crowd kind of agreed. And, and so suddenly I just didn't want to be the one to say, hey, I'm from, I'm from West Virginia here, but in retrospect, I kind of wish I had. I wish I had, in a sense, stood up for the state. You know, instead, the comment this guy made kind of passed along and everyone accepted it as true and because no one kind of stood up for it, you know, everyone just kind of believed, yeah, West Virginia, you know, of all the states, West Virginia. Now, I recognize maybe this is not a huge deal, but I think we can relate to the problem I want to address here today that oftentimes we find ourselves in situations where we are called upon to stand up for something and we have trouble doing it or we find that there's a bunch of peer pressure against something and, and we're for that something. I mean, as I think of just some examples, some of us, for example, have believed certain things but you find yourself among a group that doesn't believe the same way and suddenly you are kind of silenced, right? 
You don't want to be the one to say, hey, I, be I believe differently about that. And so we, we're silenced. In fact, I might even go so far as to say sometimes we're bullied into silence. I've been in context before where somebody said something negative about another person that I had a positive impression of. And as soon as people spoke about that person, person, other people jumped in attacking that person and I was confronted with the question, do I stand up for this person or not? And it is incredibly difficult to stand up at a time like that. Some of you perhaps have done some things in your life that you regretted doing because you felt the pressure. Either everyone else was doing it or else they were encouraging you to do it and you, you in your heart didn't want to but you felt there was pressure to do it and you caved, you, you gave in. It could be something even in terms of uh, def uh, defending your own faith, the fact that you're a Christian. I've been cl in classes at the university before where the teacher clearly was against Christians. And certain statements were made, and the question was, do I stand up and say, wait a minute, that's not, that's not right? It's hard in cases like that to stand up. In Proverbs 25, in verse 26, Solomon, one of the uh, wisest guys who ever lived, wrote these words, a righteous person who yields to the wicked is like a muddied spring or a polluted well. A righteous person who yields to the wicked is like a muddied spring or a polluted well. When I read this, I have this image of maybe this beautiful mountain stream and the water is coming down the mountain and it's so fresh. You can drink right from the stream and then I'm envisioning a scene where there's some people up ahead though that decide they want to walk in the middle of the stream. And so they move along in the stream and suddenly the muddied water comes down and something that was pure now has become dirty. Or a well from which normally you can get delicious water, some of the best water I've ever tasted has come from a well. But if it gets polluted, a righteous person who yields to the wicked is like a muddied stream or a polluted well. Today we're going to continue a series we've been doing all summer on various people in the, the Old Testament who were ordinary, but they either did extraordinary things or they were ones who became part of God's extraordinary plan. And so they're just ordinary people, most of them. And we've been looking at each of these different people and maybe a lesson or two we can learn from each one. Well, today we're going to look at a story of a guy and his three friends who were faced with an opportunity to compromise, and yet they chose not to do it. My takeaway here today comes from their example, but also from this proverb. Don't be like muddied waters. Don't become like muddied waters. The guys I want to talk about here today, their names are Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, some of you are familiar with the story of, especially Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How many of you remember a story related to these guys? I mean, if you, many of you, you know that they were, um, they were ones who didn't compromise when the king asked them to bow before an idol, and as a result, they were thrown into a furnace, and they survived. What's ironic about our subject here today is that we shouldn't be calling these guys Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because as we'll see in a minute, those are their pagan names. 
Why are we calling them by those names? These were guys that stood up for their faith in God, the God of Israel. And their names reflected that, and we'll see that in a minute, but they were ones who refused to compromise. Our story begins in Daniel chapter 1. Why don't you follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace, and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to serve in the king's court. Among them, from the descendants of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them other names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Now, let me stop here for a moment and just talk about the scene the year is 605 B.C., about 600 years before Jesus was born. Nebuchadnezzar had just defeated Pharaoh. And he was on his way back to his own land in Babylon. And along the way, he stopped at Jerusalem and he attacked the city. He laid siege to the city, which means he cut off the water and food supplies. And then he eventually broke through the city, broke through the wall... And he went into the temple and he grabbed some of the utensils that were used in the worship at the temple in Israel. In addition, he grabbed some of the children who belonged to the royal family or the nobles and he carted them off in exile with him back to Babylon. That is, that's the scene. Now, as this story begins in 605 B.C., Babylon, or Nebuchadnezzar's desire is not to destroy Jerusalem. That comes about 20 years later. He didn't want to destroy Jerusalem. He wanted Jerusalem to be a vassal city from which he could collect taxes. And so on this first trip, as he attacked the city, he, he won the battle, but he kept an Israelite king installed there, somebody from the tribe of Judah, to continue running things. He grabbed some of the utensils from the temple, but not all of them, because he wanted things to just continue there, and, and then he was going to begin collecting taxes. And then he grabbed some people to take his hostages with him, and the people that it says he took were children of, of the king and the royal family and nobles. Why would he do that? Well, I think one of the main reasons that he did it was that it was insurance for him. It's like, you, you better behave, king of Israel. You better behave, you nobles. I'm, I'm leaving you in charge here, but I've got, I've got your kids over here. It was insurance, I think. And they were carted off to Babylon, and they were suddenly 
recruited for or put into a training program to serve the king of Babylon. A guy named Ashpenaz, the chief official, was given some instructions to go identify some individuals that would be perfect for training and ones that could eventually serve the king of Babylon. The requirements of these individuals, he said, in verse 4, were that they had to be young men without physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. Now, the goal was to train these guys in the ways of the Babylonians. The goal was to teach them the language and the literature of Babylon. They would begin to dress like the Babylonians. They'd be given food of the Babylonians. The idea was to, to turn them into loyal Babylonians. And what's interesting about these guys that were chosen is their age. Uh, most scholars believe that Daniel and his three friends that were chosen here were 14. Plato indicated that this was the age in which the Persians began to train their young men. The word, you, the word that's used for young men in this story, the Hebrew word, could mean children. It could be boys or it could be translated young men as in teens, but most likely they were about 14. And the goal was for three years until they were 17, they would be indoctrinated. That, that was the plan. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment what it would have been like if you had been one of those young people that was carted off and suddenly put in, into this training program. And the goal was to change everything about these guys. Look at verse 5 again. The king assigned them their daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank, so they had to eat what he ate and drank what he drank. They were to be trained for three years. At the end of that time, they were to serve in the king's court. Among them were these descendants of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the chief official gave them other names. He gave them Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, Shadrach to Hananiah, Mishak to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. The point is this, that the Babylonians were masters of assimilation. Any of you Star Trek fans? You know, there's one particular group that the Federation feared the most. It was the Borg. We actually had someone in the church, might even be here this morning, who was actually a Borg on that program for about five years. The main line from the Borg is, you will be assimilated, you will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. That's what these Babylonians were all about. They were going to change everything. They were going to remove all individuality. That's what the goal of this assimilation is. They'd already taken them from their familiar home. Now they're living in a different place, but they were going to change everything. What they look like, how they dressed, they were going to be taught the, the literature and the ways of the Babylonians. In fact, they went so far as to even change their names. You see, the, the four guys that were selected in this story all had Hebrew names, but their names all relate to God. All of them do. According to a scholar by the name of S.R. Miller, Daniel's name signifies God is my judge. That's what his name means. God is my judge. Hananiah's name means Yahweh is gracious. 
Yah or Yahweh is the Hebrew name for God. Mishael, his name means who is what God is. It means, many feel, that his name meant there's no other God but God. Who is, who is what God is? That's what his name meant. And Azariah, his name meant Yahweh has helped or Yahweh will help. These were their names. Every one of these guys was named after the God of Israel. Well, you can't have that. If your goal is to assimilate everybody and you want to change everything, one of the places you need to go after is their religion. And so he changed their names. A scholar by the name of Daniel Archer says, Daniel's new name, which is Belteshazzar, means Bel protect his life. Bel was one of their gods. Hanani was called Shadrach, likely meaning under the command of Aku, their moon god. Mishael received the name Mishak, which is translated who is what Aku is. They, they basically took the same mystery name and they applied it just a pagan version of it. Who's like Aku, basically. Azariah's name was changed to Abednego, meaning servant of Nebo. It's one of their gods. You can see the deliberate attempt to remove all of all that they were counting on for their historical background. What would you do if you were in that situation? Well, I think most of us would do what most of the people did. Most of the guys in this exact context decided there's nothing I can do. I, I, I'm not in Israel anymore. My life is not my own. I've been carted off to Babylon, and they would just accept things the way they are. But these three guys, plus Daniel, refused to do it. And the line where they drew a line was related to the food, the food that they ate. You see, if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, you know that Jewish people in the Old Testament law were not allowed to eat certain foods. They were not allowed to eat, for example, pork. So bacon is certainly out. And you can't have shellfish, so you can't eat that lobster or that shrimp. There were certain foods that they were not allowed to eat. In addition to that, the way in which the food was prepared could be a problem because the Jewish law required that the blood be drained from the meat. When I was in high school, there was a Jewish woman who lived across the street, a practicing Jewish woman who we would go shopping sometimes. I'd help her out and she'd go shopping in the grocery store and she'd buy steaks. She loves, loves steaks, T-bone and porterhouse. And she'd literally clean out the grocery store of all the steaks. She'd have a whole case full of steaks. I mean, she'd empty them all out, took all the T-bones and all the porterhouse, and then, of course, she didn't want to eat the steak alone. She was a widow, and so she'd invite our family over to eat. But before we'd eat the steak, she would set the meat in water, and she'd get rid of all the blood. She was trying to follow this Old Testament law that you're not allowed to eat the meat with the blood. In addition, there was a third problem with this food, and the problem was, both the food and the wine were likely from the temple. You see, people brought the best of the land to the temple of their gods. And many scholars believe that the food that the king ate came from the temple. That's where it came from. And so you realize that 
the food and the wine had been offered to the gods of the Babylonians. And so you've got a situation where these Jewish young men are being forced to eat food that they know is contrary to the Old Testament law. So what do you do about it? Well, Daniel and his friends refused to become like muddied waters. We pick up the story in verse 8 where we read, Daniel determined he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. God granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official, yet... He said to Daniel, my Lord, the king assigned your food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your faces looking thinner than those of the other young men your age. You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, by the way, I mean, some people look at this story and say it's a case for eating vegetarian. Well, that's fine. I know that could be a healthy way to, to eat, but that's really not the point of the story. The point was that they did not want to defile themselves, and so they said, this is the route where we know everything's going to be okay, and not against the law. Now, they could have, again, like all the others, said, well, we, what choice do we have? We just got to eat what's put before us. We're in Babylon after all. And I, we might have justified that, saying, well, what choice? Even some Old Testament prophets, prophets had prophesied that you're going to find yourself in a foreign land and going to have to eat unclean food. If you turn away from me, that's what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. But these young men had a different perspective. And I love the way they handled it because their disagreement was brought about in such an agreeable way. Christians are not very good about this sometimes. We come, sometimes come across as holier than thou. You know, if we'd been back there, we might have said, I can't eat your pagan food. And then the answer would have been, die then. I mean, that's what it would have been. They could have, they could have handled it differently, but they acted wisely. They came up with a, a test. A scholar by the name of S.R. Miller had this to say about the example of these guys. Believers today may disagree with official policies and even with each other, but they should follow Daniel's example in disagreeing in an agreeable fashion. They took a stand, and it worked. And as a result, I believe verse 17 became true. Which I think verse 17 is because of verses 1 through 16. I can't prove that, but verse 17 says, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, the king interviewed them, and among all of them, 
No one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to serve in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all the diviner priests and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. I'm convinced that God included this story in the pages of the Bible so that we would learn from their example that as the expression goes, we should kind of dare to be a Daniel. We as believers in Christ are called to live differently. And, and we believe differently. Paul was writing to the Romans in Romans 12 too. He said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One version translates that, don't let the world squish you into its mold. Don't let the world press you into its mold. You see, as believers in Christ, we're part of the kingdom of God, but we live in a worldly kingdom, and, and as a result, there are values that sometimes are going to be in conflict. There are beliefs that are sometimes going to be in conflict. There are morals that are sometimes going to be in conflict. There, the ways of our society might be different than the ways of the kingdom of God, and that's where then we're faced with a choice. Do we stand up? John wrote in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, he said, don't love the world or the things of the world. Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. He wasn't saying hate the world in which you live, but he was saying that the, the values of this world, the things that the world loves, the things that the world goes after, the things the world believes in, the, the morals of this world, they're not right. And we're called to live differently. So don't be like muddied waters. Some of you this morning are new students. I think you're going to be faced with a lot of challenges. I remember what that was like about 100 years ago when I was a student. Don't remember what that was like, the pressure. You're going to be asked to do things. You're going to be drawn along, and then you're going to have a decision to make. I mean, don't, don't be this holier-than-thou person, but at the same time, I don't even need to spell out what those things are because I think in your heart you know you're going to find yourself in situations and you're going to know this is not something I should do. But there's a lot of pressure, especially in this town, which goes by the name party school. And there are pressures out there. There'll be other pressures to do things like cheat. I remember in a course I took, a business course here, where one of the students presumed I was a better student and said, can I, can I look over your shoulder during the test? Well, I don't like to be the unpopular one to say, no, you cheater. At the same time, in my heart, it's like, I can't. I can't do this. I can't do this. There are gracious ways. There are gracious ways like Daniel. We can learn from his example there. But you're going to face things. You're going to have friends that don't, won't care about God or care about the church, and you're going to be silenced again to think that it's, you, you don't want to tell anyone that you're a Christian. Don't be like muddied waters. You'll be lured into morals that don't line up with what the Bible says. In Proverbs 25, 26, again, a righteous person who yields to the wicked is like a muddied spring or polluted well. Of course, you don't have to be students to experience this. You experience things all the time in the workplace. Just about every profession has areas in which your relationship with God will be tested where you'll be Tested to compromise. I, I know some who were told by their boss to change the numbers in the ledger, things like that. And they had a choice to make. 
or to just let people know that they're Christians, it's not easy to do. It is so easy to go with the flow. It's so easy to go along with the peer pressure. I think that's part of the situation we're facing as a state when you think of these Supreme Court justices all facing impeachment. Why? Because nobody, I'm sure somebody along the line thought a $35,000 couch doesn't work. And I don't want to weigh into all that, but at some point, someone might have stopped to say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't know that this is right. But it's hard when there's an entire culture, perhaps. We face things all the time. It's hard to stand alone, but I encourage you to do it and to stand up for your faith as well. Now, you're going to blow it sometimes, and we've all blown it sometimes, and we've all compromised sometimes. I encourage you, if that's the case, though, get back up. Go back to that person. You say, you know, I, I, the way I responded to you was not the way I want to as a Christian. I just want to let you know I'm sorry. They'll, they'll be blown away. We don't, as Christians, we're not called to be perfect. But we are called to respond differently. Last thing I want to mention is some of you maybe don't know where you stand with God and, and the starting point for you is to just put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior. We believe He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through what he did for us on the cross, he paid in debt, the full debt that you owed. He paid your debt and mine on the cross. He was executed in your place for your sin, for mine. And he died, but he rose again from the dead. It's like all of the weight of the sin of the world was placed on him, but he overcame it. He won. And we have tremendous promises in the New Testament that if we'll make Jesus the object of our trust, we will receive the gift of eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. If you'd like to know more about that, we'd love to send you a little booklet that explains how to begin a relationship with God. Just maybe put on there that you'd like us to send that. Finally, I want to mention as you're leaving, uh, one is if you haven't taken the survey, please do so concerning the five o'clock service. And then second, we've got that board out there. I'd love to see all the red turn green. Those are actual positions we need to have filled. And so we encourage you to take a step and get involved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of these guys who are willing to stand up for what they believed and to do it in such a gracious way, not a self-righteous way. Lord, you've called us to be different, to be set apart in this world, to stand up for you, to not be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Help us, Lord, to apply these things to the various situations we're facing in this life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.